If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined again by Athena King, a political scientist at the University of Virginia State. Welcome back to the show, Athena. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much. This is exciting. It is exciting. I mean, we have a lot of, (laughs) so many things are going on right now in the world uh, and in the United States specifically, and so it's always a lot of fun. And since classes have formally ended for both of us. We were talking about this before the show went on. Uh, both of us were the studious professors and got our grades in early. Uh, so we, we're done on that front. And then we're heading off to fun, or at least as you were saying, right, your data set, which is fun for a political scientist, right? <laughs> it, it is. And I'm going to use structural equation modeling. So I'm excited. So yeah, I am super dorky right now. Oh, I understand. I understand. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we won't talk about that. Later on the podcast, we'll talk about like OLS regressions. And um, anyway, but be that as it may, what we are going to start off with listeners this week is we had already planned to talk about the White House chief of staff shift because there has been a lot of agitation this week about who's it going to be going to. And when we first started taking a look at it, there was even a suggestion that Chris Christie would be the next. Uh, Christie had turned it down, obviously, uh, after John Kelly had said that he was announced that he was leaving at the end of the year. It seemed that Nick Ayers was going to be kind of the heir apparent, uh, pun intended. And Mm -hmm. that did not work out. He actually turned down Donald Trump, much the surprise. Uh, There were other possibilities like Jared Kushner. But right before we started recording, Uh, What uh, came out was that Donald Trump announced that it would be uh, Mick Mulvaney, who currently is the director of the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB. But what's fascinating about this at the moment is that Trump is announcing this as the acting White House chief of staff. So this isn't necessarily permanent. Uh, And it might hint at the fact that perhaps Trump couldn't get anyone to say yes. I'm not sure about that. But one way or the other, Trump thinks that he's going to be making America great again with Mulvaney, according to Twitter. So, Athena, what do you think about this choice? What do you think about this kind of interesting use of acting in the title? What does that mean? Um, It suggests that he couldn't get the people that he couldn't keep who he wanted for starters because they left or they disappointed him. And I think it comes down to who can he trust for right now until he 
discovers that next person who could carry him through to the next election. I mean, that's what it comes across as. Um, I was reading this stuff about Kelly turning the job down, and apparently he was somebody that Jared and Ivanka wanted because he's young and, you know, he's more on their level. Well, and he's been successfully (laughs) working with Mike Pence. Exactly. He was Pence's Pence's chief of staff. So, you know, I thought, well, that's kind of crazy. Why wouldn't he take the job? But um, I read an article yesterday that says that perhaps he didn't take the job because he's trying to protect his own political ambitions because I think he's from Georgia and somebody said that he's the kind of person that could very well run for governor of Georgia one day. And so maybe tying himself to the POTUS, I mean, the vice POTUS is fine because Pence tends to fly under the radar, but POTUS, you know, he's out there front and center. And right now his administration is having a hard go of it, if you will, with all of these investigations. So arguably Kelly is just trying to keep his nose clean and figuratively speaking, and doing that by not taking the job. But why did Mulvaney take the job is an even bigger question because um, the state newspaper, by the way, I'm from South Carolina, so I'm familiar with some of the politicians, and Mulvaney is one of them that I have some familiarity with. Um, he was telling people this week that he wouldn't take the job, but he did. Yeah, so why and, do you think he did it? And, that, and that's a great question because – I, I would not have taken this job. I mean, there's lots of jobs I would take. There's some that I wouldn't. The The chief of staff job is difficult in the best of times. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Rahm Emanuel used to say, look, you walk around with a target on your front and your back, and those aren't the only parts when you're the chief, chief of staff. Exactly. Uh, and as a matter of fact, during Reagan's term, you, uh, we had a number of chief of staffs. They just They just couldn't keep doing it. And so this is this is a historically very, very difficult job under the best of circumstances. And during right. the Trump administration, we're clearly not, at least according to the people on the inside, uh, in the best of circumstances. And so I, I understand why Kelly wants out, although I never really understood why he wanted to spend his credibility this way. Uh, but that was his choice. And so now I think he's done. So it makes sense to me why Ayers would say no. Uh, in in the same way that you know he's hitched himself to Mike Pence, which was a good move. Although I'm still a little confused about what Pence's motivations were. If he really thought the House was going to be still standing by the time it was time for him to have a shot at the presidency, maybe mm-hmm. he did. Maybe he thought he could moderate it. But you're right. The, the big question is: Did he take this as an intern because he's getting an arm twisted, or is he doing this because he thinks it's gonna? Uh, moving forward. And I just don't see, I mean, no one thus far in this position historically has come out of it in a, in a phenomenal position. And certainly no one during the Trump administration has come out of this position with more political capital than they went into it with. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, um, I'm still looking at this article and I think that Mulvaney might just be he could either be that person that sort of tempers the Trump White House, or he could get caught up in it and wind up 
being forced to leave. But I think right now that he might be the best bet to hold things together, so to speak. But, you know, it, it was it was not that long ago that I was having a similar conversation about John Kelly. And there was this idea, right. hey, he's going to be the adult in the room. He's going to do it. And obviously that did not come to pass. Uh, you don't have to read very long to see that in some ways Trump brought out more the worst in Kelly than Kelly probably brought out the best in Trump. So, I mean, I don't disagree with you, Athena, in, in per se, but it just seems like the evidence stacks up to the position of, man, that's a that's a tough sell. And I mean, it clearly it mm -hmm. is, given how many people have turned down the president. It's very difficult in the White House to turn somebody down. And we know that Christie talked for a significant period of time with Trump and that Trump was interested in him as well. So he's now been turned down a number of times. And I'm sure that can't make him happy, given what we know about his personality traits. I think Chris Christie should just let it go. Any hopes that he had for working with the Trump administration, just dash them now because it's not going to happen. Well, no. And not only that, but why would you want to? Uh, but, you know, maybe we should kind of pivot on this on this front, Athena, because the other really big story this week, obviously, is Michael Cohen pleading guilty mm -hmm. and getting sentenced to three years because we're talking about what happens when you're around Trump a while. <laughs> uh, and so uh, this week, we've actually had a fascinating exchange between Cohen on TV, specifically NBC, and Trump on Twitter. So obviously, Cohen has uh, pled guilty. He's gotten three years. Uh, but what happened this week is that Cohen went on television and said that he's done it out of, quote, blind loyalty, end quote, to Trump. He, quote, gave loyalty to someone who, truthfully, does not deserve it, end quote. President Trump, for his part, has denied the underlying affairs uh, with uh, Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels. But his explanation over what has happened uh, after that uh, has shifted. Most recently, mm -hmm. the president has argued that it was not a campaign finance violation. Things have happened, but it wasn't a violation of campaign finance. The court filing, however, for Michael Cohen notes that Cohen acted, quote, in coordination with and at the discretion of, end quote, President Trump. So on Twitter today, Trump, or excuse me, a couple of days ago, Trump argued that he never directed Michael Cohen to break the law and supposed he knew the law. Further, he argued that Cohen is guilty of many charges unrelated to him, but that he pled to the two campaign charges just to embarrass the pre President Trump. Further, he argued that he let his family, quote, off the hook. Cohen has responded that Trump knows the truth, and that's why he's coming after his family. So what do you think about this plot twist? I mean, it, it seems every other week we have another bit of the dripping story uh, about Trump campaign finance allegations and, of course, Russia. It's kind of like a left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand, and they seem to kind of go together. What do you think about all that, Theon? Exactly. Well, um, you mentioned the word loyalty, and it caused me to think about this show that I've been watching. It's a documentary on Showtime regarding the relationship between the president and the FBI. And the last episode that they had was about the relationship between Trump and Comey. And oh. I thought about that, that dinner that they had where Comey says that Trump asked him for loyalty. So 
it stands to reason that he expected loyalty from Cohen when Cohen started working for him. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then it's fair to say that if this president values loyalty and he valued loyalty before he became president, then it stands to reason that Cohen was acting out of loyalty when those payments were made to those adult performers. Yeah. And, you know, I was uh, one of our other colleagues here uh, on the show, King Katkin, mm -hmm. uh, over the summer. He he pushed me relatively hard on the idea that he thought there was a whole lot more to the investigations. And I was a little bit skeptical of that. I thought mm -hmm. he was being a little bit hysterical on the left, <laughs> to be real honest. But as time has gone on, I think that uh, Ken uh, actually was, was probably was more right than I gave him credit for. So again, this is now getting closer and closer to Trump being implicated. And it's particularly yeah. a troubling time for Trump, given that, well, it's going to be a Democratic controlled house shortly. So what do you right. think we have? Obviously, the Cohen thing going on on the one hand. Do you think that this is something that Democrats should or ought to push? Or is that, is that a mistake? Because I know that there are some of our listeners and some of the left are suggesting, forget about this. That's not the track to take. Trying to do an impeachment is a, a losing battle. What do you kind of think about that, uh, Athena? Well, I think that we we have to remember, first of all, who Mueller is. Mueller isn't just some lawyer that got hired off the street to come in and investigate this. This man was the head of the FBI for what, 13 years? It's something, something like, like that. that. I'm not remembering that off the top of my head, but yeah, you're about right. Yeah. So this is somebody who understands the nature of investigation and what goes into it. And I know that there are people who are saying, well, if he found something, uh, it would have come out by now. That something that directly implicates Trump, you know, he would have done something by now. But that's not necessarily so, because Watergate took, what, 444 days, something like that. So. If you have somebody who understands the nature of criminal investigation because he headed the largest criminal investigation agency in the country, then the fact that all of these, you know, indictments are coming out and they're coming out at um, somewhat slowly, I would argue, some people feel this is slow. And they're not necessarily hitting the president and his inner circle, with the exception of Cohen, but not hitting the president directly. I would argue that it's just a matter of time that because Mueller, you know, because of his past, is one of those people who's going to be very thorough and efficient. And for the Democrats who are coming in to become the majority in the House next month, impeachment is sort of a, if they went for impeachment right off the bat, it would be, I would say, a dumb idea. Why? Because even if the articles of impeachment pass the House, he's got to be tried in the Senate, and the Senate still has a majority um, for Republicans. Mm -hmm. And they're 
people who are saying, you know, there are Republican leaders who are saying that, you know, this whole situation with Cohen and the other, you know, individuals who've been indicted, that it's really not as severe as people think it is. And they're actually standing by the by the president, people like Orrin Hatch and Grassley. So the Republicans don't see that there is a problem yet. And so I think the Democrats would be wrong if they try to start out their new term next month you know, with the idea that. of impeachment. Exactly. Well, it would be dumb and it'll be a waste, well, I and, think. And this, is, and this brings up an interesting point that I have been mulling over uh, recently, and that is, have we entered an era of American politics where it, you kind of noted there a minute ago, Athena, that you said, well, you know, Republicans don't see an issue yet. And, and the question might rightfully be asked, will Republicans, or if the situation was reversed, or will Democrats... Are they ever going to be willing to go against their political ties and say, well, you know what? It's time to do that now. It seems increasingly unlikely to me. And so I wonder if if that is even being is really even a threat that hangs over not just President Trump, but any president, as long as he he or she uh, has at least one of the chambers with his political party in charge. I mean, do you, do you think there's ever going to be a time when Democrats are going to say, yeah, let's cross the aisle and impeach uh, or convict a Democratic president? Or in this case, do you think Republicans in the Senate could ever be convinced, hey, wait a second, this is the bridge too far? And what would that be even? I'm not, I'm not sure there is one. That's hard to say because right now um, it just seems as though both the – Republicans and Democrats, but especially the Republicans, are very provincial about their seats. And so if they feel that the president is not doing anything that rises to the level of impeachment, then they're not going to say, or at least not going to say publicly, that they believe that he should be impeached. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I just, I'm at the point now to where I feel as though when Mueller's investigation is done, he has to have uncovered so much incontrovertible evidence of Trump being involved in all of this and thus having committed some high crime and misdemeanor that, you know, even the Republicans can't deny that this is wrongdoing. However, I think there are going to be some Republicans who believe that regardless of what comes out, as long as he didn't kill anybody, he should be president. And, you know, I sounded kind of flip when I said that, but I believe that for them, it they have to be presented with something that is so egregious that they have no choice but to, you know, suggest that impeachment might be the, the way to go. Does that make sense? No, I hear you. I, I just don't think that it's likely. 
I don't think that any modern political party, so I'm not just pointing a finger here at uh, Republicans in this sense, mm-hmm. but I, you know, you head back to the 90s and, well, you know, Bill Clinton, he lied, but he lied about sex, so it doesn't matter if it's under oath or not. Uh, and now we have, obviously, I think, you know, maybe even more, definitely more egregious kinds of interventions. And so now it's, well, it's that's just campaign finance. It's complicated. It's difficult. It sounds like what we'll always have, and I, and I think it's likely to suggest is is that, given that this is a political process, I don't think that as long as you're as long as you hold one of the two chambers of Congress, that there's mm-hmm. really going to be a serious possibility of impeachment. And so, while these kinds of things I think are dripping out from Cohen and others, and again, I think I, I, my position has shifted again. I think more in line with uh, with uh, Ken Katkins. I still don't see that as being. I, I know that he's still kind of holding out hope. I think that there'll be this kind of moment when the, the when the president comes down. I, I think he's. That's where I still think he might be a little bit wrong. Uh, but you know, what to kind of wait and see. And this this continues to be. And I'm sure in a couple of weeks we'll be talking about this again uh, as we get the next bit of it. And I know here at some point in January, I imagine we're going to see something else happen, but we'll see. The other big bit of news this week, uh, and I I had shared this online on Twitter uh, and on Facebook earlier in the week, President Trump sat down with Nancy Pelosi and Schumer for a private conversation, and then they had a really normal presidential moment, a photo op. But what followed (laughs) wasn't so normal. Yeah, you're already laughing. No, it wasn't normal. (laughs) Instead, uh, the normal pleasantries of the Oval Office were dispensed with, and there was quite intense exchange now you know at first it's kind of a bit shocking on one level uh because this is not normal what i mean uh listeners isn't that you know this is wrong but just rather it's not what we have come to expect from these kinds of moments generally these kinds of discussions happen only after the cameras go out uh as uh pelosi was even kind of pointing out to trump uh and Normally, we're kind of in for those pleasantries, but instead, Trump pushed the conversation towards funding a wall. And my first reaction to this, and I had shared it on, uh, again, I said like Twitter and Facebook, was I thought this was a fail. I thought that uh, Trump had kind of misread the situation, that he was wrong. But actually, the more I've thought about it, and the more I've read about it, and the more times I've watched the video, the more I think he actually was brilliant on this front. I know. I just said that Trump was brilliant. Uh, This was really reality TV at its best. You have Mm -hmm. Trump looking strong. You have this big amount of tension. Not anybody was expecting this. It creates kind of drama, television drama over the issue. And now Democrats are stuck responding to the president and not taking the initiative. And I think that these are the moments when Trump wins when we don't think he's normally winning. So I've already kind of given my hand away there, Athena. But what do you think about this moment? And, And what do you think about... Did he, is this a, is this a political win or is this a loss? I think that it is, can I say it's both? Would I be cheating if I said it's both? You know, I just got done telling right. my uh, upper level division students that they can't have it both ways. They, you, know, you can't, you can't be a Marxist and a liberal at the same time. Uh, my, shout out to all my ideology students. Uh, <laughs> So, well, but explain me. Yeah, here. I'll, I'll, like, yeah, tell us why. Maybe I'll decide I'm going to push back or not. Okay, I I think that it's a win for him in the sense that he had control of that discussion, and 
you know, Chuck Schumer with his cheap shots. I was like, really? He doesn't care that he won Indiana. He cares about the fact that he wants the wall. He wants his $5 billion for the wall. And if he doesn't get his money, the it was government nine billion, was shut though, wasn't down it? and he owned it. Yeah. So for him, for him, that was kind of a win. And Pelosi's pushback wasn't all that great. Now, this is why it's a fail. Um, they already, they being Congress, have already given him money for the wall. So, and they haven't actually finished um, the sections that the money went to. And um, I think maybe a lot of people who believe in this idea of the wall based on how um, the how Trump presented it when he was campaigning, um, I think some people might assume that there is no border there at all, but there is. But it sounds as though, you know, instead of the type of border that's already there, that's being reinforced, maybe... Does the president want something that's like 20 foot high concrete, you know, with barbed wire across the top? I'm I'm unclear as to what this wall is supposed to look like, especially since there's already there's already structures along the southern border and it's been beefed up with regards to additional border agents and such. So. I'm trying to figure out what the five billion is going to do. Well, when he was actually, I got to see him in person when he was campaigning for election, and he actually flew into Daytona Beach uh, and came out to the Ocean Center out there. And myself and some fellow colleagues, we went out and we uh, and we listened and we watched. And and yeah, I, mean, I think you're on on page. What he promised at least that day, which was something that he kind of, one of the singular, I think, consistencies he's had. He said, we're going to have this big wall as big as the ocean center here, and it's going to be concrete. It's going to be thick. And uh, and then he talked about the girth of the wall for a while. Uh, no, no joke. That really was what he talked about. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I know listeners are saying, wait, is he taking a shot? No, I'm not. That's just – that is what he, he, was, he said. And – but and, and I think this is actually really popular, and I have trouble with this one. I'll be honest. I am an open borders kind of guy, right? So I, I, I want people and uh, money to flow freely across borders, ideologically speaking. But I recognize that I'm, I'm definitely in the minority here, and I, I wonder if maybe the Democrats don't realize how popular – sealing the southern border and borders in general are and when mm-hmm. when trump here at the end basically says look i'm gonna own right I, I, the bottom line is i i want the shutdown i'll have a shutdown if you're not going to do it i mean it makes him look tough it puts him on the issue that i think his base wants him to be on and right. I mean, and you and you mean i don't think that you're wrong in the sense that maybe there's not a well thought out plan here uh but uh political capital isn't won or lost on well thought out plans it's won or nope. lost in in media settings and so you know and that's why i'm 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 kind of still firmly in the camp i don't see this as a loss on any front and i don't think that most democrats including pelosi and schumer i think they both walked out there going we just won and i think they're dead wrong that's true. Um, but at the same time, though, um, 
some of the things that that the president did that I, that caused me to think that he's he's failing is when he tried to mansplain to Pelosi. <laughs> um, yeah, she came back a little bit on know, that front. She's like, let's not talk about that. I, you don't need to challenge me. Yeah, you're right. Keep going. I'm sorry. Exactly. And um, let's see. I already mentioned Schumer's put down. It was just sort of meh. And the fact that he looked at the camera like he said something that was just so sophisticated. and It was, you know, it was like your crazy uncle. A, yeah, and it was like, dude, that was stupid. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, but I, you, I hear you. Yeah. I mean, you're right about the mansplaining in that sense. But is that really going to be the thing that hurts him? Or does he win overall? Because, again, Democrats are now going to have to, this whole conversation is set up to be, do you really care about the border? And no matter how many times uh, Pelosi and, and, and Pelosi says, hey, we need to think about what's actually happening here and questioning the index cards, that doesn't change the fact that he walks away, I think, having set the tone for what the conversation is going to be. And if a shutdown comes, I mean, Take a look at his Twitter feed today. He has a video of a number of the big Democrats talking about wanting to be tougher on borders, and he puts them all together and says, hey, if they're not going to do it, it's just because they're lying to themselves. I think he set this – I think he set himself up brilliantly. Yeah, um, I can see that. And um, another thing that I thought about you know, when I was – you know, doing my research and when I actually watched the video the other day is how this whole issue of the wall and immigrants to come into this country, it just made me think about, you know, the stuff that I was researching for my dissertation. And um, so what was your dissertation on? Pretty much, you know, um, I did it on race and ethnic triangulation and the policy entrepreneurs that promulgated it. And my focus was on the Chinese back in 1882, um, the Mexicans who were basically driven away from the southern states during the Depression, but then when World War II hit, they came back. And the whole thing centers around the economy. When the economy is doing well, when people are working and they're making money, they don't really care that much about immigration. It's more along the lines of, I got my job, I'm making my money, I don't care what you do. But whenever it seems as though the economy is in trouble or a certain segment um, of the economy, certain set of workers might feel that the economy is failing them, that's when we start this whole xenophobic notion that the immigrants need to be kept out. Um, I also wrote a paper that I need to clean up and try to get published about how this attitude was reflected when the Irish came here and it was the development of the Know Nothing Party. So the president talking about us needing a wall to keep immigrants out because they're taking jobs and you know, whatever else he said that, you know, all the negative stuff that he's saying, um, in my mind, I guess, as a political scientist, the first word that comes to my mind is economy. You know, when the economy seems to be doing well, 
we don't hear this stuff, but whenever it's not, I, Go ahead. Well, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but what was fa- it's fascinating, though, if you think back, this was I, one of the major campaign planks for Donald Trump uh, during a period when the economy was doing really well, comparatively speaking. What do you think? It wasn't doing well in West Virginia, not doing well in Mississippi. So you think it was it was Alabama? It was the regions in which weren't doing well that propels him. Okay, I hear that. Mm -hmm. That is fascinating. No, I mean I can't. I have I have not thought about that uh, from that point of view probably enough. And again, I think that's partially due to my own bit of ideological blind blind spot there. And I I can be uh, I I think be upfront about that. Uh, so do you think, though, I mean, here we are, we have the Dow has continued to come down. Uh, things have not gone particularly well economically. So on that front, wouldn't that then still be putting, doesn't this kind of confrontation play to the era then? Oh, definitely. Um, and the fact that the conversation between among Trump, Pelosi and Schumer taking place the base sees this as, you know, Trump standing his ground. You know, they still feel that part of their problems would be alleviated if we made sure that we kept the unwanted out because of, you know, the various reasons that people um, actually want this sort of thing to happen. And it, I Every time I hear it, I just think, you know, it's it's an economic issue that's being cloaked in a racial and ethnic sort of um, disguise. That is an interesting take on that. Now, you know, as since we're kind of talking economics here, the other big economic piece has been happening is this question of the international trade relationship between China and the United States. There has been a bit of an inverted international love triangle going on after Canada on behalf of the United States arrested the CFO of Huawei. Uh, The desire is to extradite her to the United States. In response, China has now detained two Canadian nationals over allegations of national security. And there's really two pieces to the story. I'm kind of curious on your take on both of these. One is that the U.S. has charged the company uh, Huawei as using its technology to infiltrate other countries' national security. As a matter of fact, on that front, Australia and New Zealand uh, rejected bids to have the company set up a 5G network in their countries. Meanwhile, China and the U.S. have continued to have this on-again, off-again trade war issue. Uh, And as a matter of fact, this morning, Friday morning, President Trump tweeted, quote, China just announced that their economy is growing much slower than anticipated because of our trade war with them. They have just suspended U.S. tariff hikes. U.S. is doing very well. China wants to make a big and very comprehensive deal. It could happen and rather soon, end quote. So, what do you think about this? Do you, are these going together? Do you see them as two different stories? And how do they play out? What do you think about that, Athena? Um, I, when I was looking at this story, I was thinking, okay, this kind of reminds me of that ZTE issue from a few months ago. Yeah, and we talked about again, that was you and me. Yeah. 
Yep. Full disclaimer for those of you who are listening, I am not an economist, but I will do my level best to explain this in a way that a lay person would probably understand it. Um, right now, um, having, what's her name, Miss Wenzel, or however she pronounced her yeah. name. Yeah. Um, her being arrested in Canada at our behest, you know, we in this country, you know, our government has been keeping its eye on what happens in China, especially with regard to, you know, security risk related to technology. And especially in this case, since there's connections with Iran, which is the specific charge going on. Exactly. So um, she supposedly used a subsidiary Skycam to bring U.S. manufacturing equipment money to Iran, which was in violation of sanctions. But still, you know, we have been sort of wary of China. I mean, we got really exposed to them in the 70s when Nixon went over there. And since then, you know, we've sort of brought them close, but it's kind of that thing where you keep your friends close, enemies closer. And we've had rich relationships with them. But at the same time, we do know of instances where the Chinese have been spying, they have been hacking. And so this event, you know, is one of those things that makes me think that we are, we being the United States, are readily suspicious of what the Chinese might be doing. I mean, for a country that is growing um, so much economically, we still don't have that strong of a grasp on them, I think, because they also pair their economic growth and what comes across as capitalism with communism mm-hmm. you know there's still which is a know, really f- bizarre economic mashup that happens in china exactly i actually got in an argument when i was in grad school with a friend of mine who's actually from china and i told him i said it looks as though your country is moving towards sort of a hybrid ideology where you're holding on to communism, but at the same time, you are taking these capitalistic steps. And he swore up and down that wasn't the case. But, huh. That's so what was his argument decade. then? And he said that, um, that the growth in China was not going to be such that one could readily say that capitalism is taking a hold and i was like really but um, i think you won out on that uh, that exchange (laughs) (laughs) that's okay i i've had arguments way before my time and i've turned out to be prescient so i'm cool with it Um, (laughs) (laughs) you know and we have because they've grown so much and we have this economic interdependence and I still need to read that 50-page paper about it. I haven't gotten around to it. Um, We are just, I would say that the average person doesn't know what's going on. I mean, even though we're scholars, you know, unless you study Chinese politics or international relations, you might, or, you know, those things plus macroeconomics, you might not understand it, but it comes across right now as sort of like 
this is an arrest has taken place. This was done because we, the United States, feels that Huawei is trying to compromise the security of the big five countries of which the United States and Canada are two of them. And that coupled with the trade war that our president has initiated, um, like I said, to the average person or the person who's not really invested in this or well-versed in this, this doesn't seem like much, but it has the potential to be pretty serious. It does. Um, and, especially, and you're right, because the things that um, my my international economics professor, uh, as he said, you know, you can't go to Walmart without taking a look at all the things being from China. Uh, and and one of the things that's easy to forget is is that the ability to live uh, have the standard of living that we have today in the United States uh, is in large part due to low-priced goods that we're able to uh, to buy from China. Uh, so while you're right, I mean, we not everybody's going to understand the macroeconomics of it all, uh, but when your computer costs more and when your toothbrushes cost more and just run on, on down the line, uh, that is something that you're going to feel, although you may or may not rightfully attribute it to what's happening. Exactly. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that I came across said something to the effect of um, Huawei has been investigated since 2016. So for the United States to ask Canada to detain this woman and an article that I read sort of compared hers like, Imagine if Bill Gates's daughter had gone to China and been arrested. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's kind of what this looks like. But at the same time, that would be the case if Bill Gates and his daughter and his company were trying to steal secrets from right. the Chinese. And had connections to uh, the American Congress or the presidency, right, which is uh, the case in China for this. Exactly. So um, one of the notes that I, made, that I made, I said to myself, I was like, it sounds as if Huawei is being accused of economic espionage. And based on what I read, I think the Chinese are offended because they think that that's happened. Mm -hmm. And in retaliation, um, two Chinese, um, two, um, sorry, two Canadians have been detained. detained. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so another thing I read said that now Americans in China are afraid that they might be next. As a matter and of fact, we've had we've had suggestions happens. that uh, people from the tech industry should not be making trips to China currently, uh, which exactly. is which is another fascinating. But I will say for now, though, that we'll have to continue to watch and see what happens because I don't think that this interaction between China and the United States is soon to be over, and so I'm sure we'll be analyzing mm -hmm. it more. Athena, it has been wonderful to be on the show again with you, and I hope you've enjoyed yourself. This 
been fun. Well, listeners, that is it. And thanks. I, I hope you like what you heard. Uh, you can, of course, we're going to ask you if you are willing to head to politicsguys.com slash support or to politicsguys.com and click on support. It is central to what we do. It's the only way that this show is possible. And for those of you who do, we have a lot of really cool bonuses. And one of those is our listeners only, our supporters show. And as a matter of fact, as soon as we get done here, Athena and I will be headed off to record that show. Additionally, I know you're going to be getting some episodes from Michael on American government. And down the line, we have even more fun things for you. So I ask and implore if you'll head to support. If you can't, if you can subscribe, share episodes, rate us on iTunes, all of those very free things do some really important stuffs for the politics guys. We would love to get your opinion. As always, you can hit us up at mail at politicsguys.com or where we have lots of robust face on Facebook dot, excuse me, facebook.com slash politicsguys page or on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. This episode was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll have a new show for you on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.